international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to a new business week from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Monday the 21st of November. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. At the COP27 summit in Egypt, an historic loss and damage deal was reached with almost 200 countries, which will set up a fund to pay poorer nations for damage caused by climate change. But it kicked many of the most controversial decisions, such as which countries should pay into the new fund into next year, when a transitional committee would make recommendations for countries to then adopt at the COP28 climate summit in November 2023. And there was disappointment that no agreement was reached on raising ambitions on tackling greenhouse gas emissions. Asia-Pacific economic cooperation leaders wrapped up their annual meeting in Bangkok on Saturday, saying in a post-summit declaration that they will uphold and further strengthen a rules-based multilateral trading system. Leaders of the 21-strong bloc said they recognised that more intensive efforts are needed to address challenges like rising inflation, food security, climate change and natural disasters. Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee held bilateral meetings with the leaders of Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore and Vietnam to discuss strengthening trade ties. On Saturday, the CE said every leader he met during the APEC summit fully understands that Hong Kong is now back on the world stage. Inflation in Japan has hit a 40-year high on the back of a weaker yen and surging costs of imported commodities. Japan's core consumer price index rose... 3.6% year-on-year in October, beating expectations for a rise of 3.5% and the quickest pace since February 1982. It's the seventh, con- seventh consecutive month that inflation has been above the Bank of Japan's target of 2%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Carlos Casanova at Union Boncare Privé and Dong Chen from Pictay Wealth Management with a view from mainland China is Shanghai-based independent economist Andy Scher. <laughs> On Wall Street, Friday, US shares closed higher but were slightly lower over the week. The S&P 500 climbed half a percent to 3,965 but was down 0.7% over the five sessions. The Dow rose 199 points or 0.6% to 33,746. The index was unchanged on the week. The Nasdaq Composite finished flat on the day at 11,146, but saw losses of 1.6% over the five days. And all three indices are positive for the month so far. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index gained 0.2% last week. The UK's FTSE 100 added 0.9% over the five days. Hong Kong stocks slipped on Friday at the end of a strong week for local shares. The Hang Seng declined 53 points, or a third of a percent, to 17,993. For the week, the benchmark index added 3.8%. And for the month of November so far, the Hang Seng has surged 22.5%, with Hong Kong stocks adding 769 billion US dollars in market capitalization. The Hang Seng Tech Index gained 0.6%, extending its rally for the week to 7.2%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite fell 0.6% to 3,097. For the week, it was up a third of a percent. 
After the close Friday, Hang Seng Index's company announced in its quarterly review that three companies will join the Hang Seng Index, increasing the number of index constituents to 76 from 73 and boosting their market capitalization to 11.12 trillion Hong Kong dollars. Noodle maker Ting Yi, property firm China Resources, Mixed Lifestyle and household electrical appliances maker Hire Smart Home will join the Hang Seng Index from December the 5th. In the commodities markets, oil prices had their worst week since August as COVID cases in mainland China continued to surge and an official in Beijing said the consistently rising cases could result in the zero COVID policy being extended. Brent crude oil was down 2.4% on the day and almost 9% lower over the week at $87.62 a barrel. Copper tumbled almost 8% last week. Gold held steady at $1,752 an ounce. Government bonds were hit by higher than expected Japanese consumer price inflation and hawkish comments from ECB President Christine Lagarde. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose six basis points Friday to 3.83%. The difference in yield between two-year and 30-year bonds is now minus 58 basis points. That's the most inverted in over 40 years. And the US dollar was sent lower by softer than expected US producer price index data at the beginning of last week, but it regained the lost ground by the end of the week. The euro this morning is trading at $1.75. The buck is over 1% firmer on the week against the Japanese yen at 140.17. Sterling was up 0.4% over the five days, closing the week out just below $1.19. Against the local currency, the British pound buys nine Hong Kong dollars and 30 cents. And the Chinese yuan kicked last week off on a firm footing after the PBOC and Chinese regulators backed support measures for the property sector. But the rally ran out of steam as COVID cases surged on the mainland. Onshore yuan ended the week 0.2% weaker at 7.12 against the dollar. And Bitcoin held up over the week despite the bankruptcy of crypto exchange FTX. And it's trading this morning at $16,200. That's down about 1% from a week ago. Uh, if we look around Asia-Pacific stock markets at the start of a brand new week, a mixed picture. Uh, the SX200 in Australia is flat. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 up a quarter of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea down a third of a percent. And it does look like the Hang Seng is going to open with losses of about 40 points at the open this morning. Times 8.10, let's welcome our Monday morning guests. We have with us over in our Queensway studio, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at Union Boncare Privé. Very good morning to you, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Dong Chen, who is Head of Asia Macroeconomic Research at Pictay Wealth Management. Morning, Dong. Good morning, Peter. Uh, Let's start with the Asia-Pacific summits. The leaders have wrapped up their annual meeting with a lot of talk um, about trade. They want to strengthen the rules-based multilateral uh, trading system. Uh, Thai Prime Minister, who's chair of the summit, said the leaders made significant progress on agreeing a multi-year work plan for a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific. 
uh, region and also Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee talked trade in four bilateral meetings with the leaders of Singapore, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia and Thailand. Um, Carlos, let me start with you. Um, how close do you think we are? We've got a lot of different free trade agreements at the moment, haven't we, in place here in Asia Pacific and some others being planned. But how close do you think we are for a true sort of free trade area across Asia Pacific? Well, I think the region is definitely keen in joining as many free trade agreements as possible. Interestingly, there's been a lot of um, enthusiasm around Asia. So everyone wants a slice of the Asian trade pie, given how we are seeing declining demand from um, Europe, but also North America in October. Um, and uh, you still have double-digit uh, export growth um, and import growth in, in the region. So, um, in my opinion, the, the, the region is a manufacturing um, powerhouse. It is an export powerhouse, but it increasingly is becoming a key market for some of the um, exporting countries around the world. And so there is a vested interest in trying to get um, a few of these trade agreements off the ground soon. Um, I, w- I would say that uh, although we are not quite there yet, um, there is a very high chance that we will see more progress in the coming months. What do you think, Dog? Are we, are we getting close? To, do we have too many of these agreements? There's quite a lot of them at the moment, aren't there? It's quite hard to know what exactly is the difference between them. Well, actually, I think that regarding um, this push for a free trade zone in Asia, actually, you have very strong fundamental reasons behind that. And uh, uh, we are actually seeing, especially in the context of relocation of uh, supply chains out of China, this trend, interestingly, actually is pushing even more intra-region trade among all Asian countries. You should think about it. If a, a factory got relocated from China to Vietnam, actually uh, that factory also needs a lot of supply from you know components mm. coming out of China. That actually increases the uh, trade between China and Vietnam. This is showing up in the data. You know, uh, Vietnam on the one hand has seen you know rising export to the U.S. of other international markets, but at the same time, its imports from China also uh, rises. So, and, and what I'm saying is that there are strong you know, forces um, nowadays behind this trend of uh, rising intra-region trade. And true for Hong Kong as well. Mr. Lee said there's about 2,000 investment projects from the SAR into Vietnam at the moment, totaling nearly $300 billion. Are these some of the countries where we should be looking to now in Hong Kong as our sort of, if you like, future for, for trade and investment? Uh, I think absolutely. I think that the entire ASEAN uh, region is uh, very uh, promising, I mean, especially a few economies. If you look at Vietnam, which is a very good example of which probably it's the most obvious beneficiary of this supply chains diversification out of China. At the same time, you look at Singapore, right? It's on fire at this point and everything Mm -hmm. is booming. So I think ASEAN uh, as a whole is a very interesting place to look at. Um, Carlos, Hong Kong wants to join the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RECEP. Tell me a bit about what difference that will make uh, to Hong Kong's economy. Well, I I think Hong Kong wants to regain some of its status as a global um, trading hub. Um, Of course, given our geographical proximity to mainland markets and factories in mainland China, um, that has been one of the key pillar industries for the Hong Kong economy um, over the past, uh, you know, 
decade or, or, or since the accession of China to the WTO, um, with this expectation of the China plus one strategy and some of these supply chains moving to other parts of Asia, Asia becoming a more important um, market uh, for final demand of some of these uh, manufactured goods, I think Hong Kong will not want to miss being part of that um, long-term direction. Okay. Dong, I, I was interested in what John Lee said about his meeting with Thai business leaders. He, he obviously was promoting very much Hong Kong's ambitions uh, to become a hub for innovation and technology. But one of them, the chairman of the Marta Foundation, made a very interesting comment, which I hoped Mr Lee took note of. He said he would consider investing in the city, but he hopes the SAR government can offer concessionary policies to attract foreign business. And he said the cost here, land cost, labour cost, is an area where Hong Kong needs to make itself more attractive. And he talked about how China uh, subsidises land. Um, and that's really our issue, isn't it? We're, we're competing uh, probably with Shenzhen, which provide enormous subsidies for businesses to go and set up there in terms of uh, rebates on rates and rents and land subsidies. Um, is that the issue that we've got to address if we really want to attract companies to come here and make this an INT hub? I do think that the Hong Kong government needs to, you know, think very hard how to shift the entire uh, policy environment. I mean, actually, this talk of transforming Hong Kong's economy into a kind of inner, towards innovation is not new, right? It has, you know, happened decades ago. You have Cyberport, for example, you know, but uh, this never really materialized uh, as exactly as uh, pointed out by those observers. Um, and uh, I think now it is a point that the Hong Kong government needs to make decisive, you know, uh, changes to, uh, to, 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 to shift the entire mentality of the government. You know, you cannot rely on the previous growth model where you have just millions and millions of mainland tourists coming to the, 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 the territory and, uh, you know, boost the retail business. That's mo that model is not going to work anymore. And they need need to do things that fundamentally change. And uh, of course, the concession subsidies will be part of it. But I do think that Hong Kong also has some advantages. You know, Hong Kong still have a lot of talents. You know, you have very good universities here. You mean, look at, for example, the CEO, the founder of uh, the, the, the uh, uh, what is that, the, the drone maker, uh, DJI, and uh, mm. he's a graduate of Hong Kong, but he started his business in Shenzhen. So those are the talents, I think, that Hong Kong government needs to take advantage of. So really, I mean, if we look at uh, Hong Kong's economy, it's going to contract around 3% this year. The third year of contraction in the last four and really what you're saying is we can't just do the same old things. Handing out more consumption vouchers next year is not going to do it, is it? It's got, we've got to think about some significant changes. Exactly. What would, would you think, Carlos? Would you agree with that? Well, I, I'm not sure if the right strategy for Hong Kong is to subsidize land prices going forward. I think that is just never going to be our competitive advantage over China, given the size difference between the two areas. Mm. Um, definitely the point on attracting foreign talent, and I think that was reflected in the budget speech. So I think that will become a priority for the coming years. Um, and of course, remember that we also have clear tax and also um, you know, the US dollar peg advantages. Um, so those two areas need to be strengthened. Um, there needs to be stronger messaging from the government that they are committed um, to some of these uh, 
foundations of Hong Kong as a financial and services hub. Um, and that, that should be more of a sort of assurance for international investors than, um, than I think some of the subsidies or other measures that have been proposed. But the chairman of Amalta, I mean, he's making the right point, isn't he? If you, you're thinking as a foreign company of setting up in Hong Kong, things like labor costs, things like land costs are a big impediment when you compare to maybe setting up in Shenzhen or elsewhere, um, in Asia. So how do we deal with that? Yeah, well, the cost of U.S. dollar clearing um, and taxation is definitely much lower than, than in mainland China. So I, inevitably, Hong Kong will not be able to attract um, every single aspect of um, the supply chain. They definitely no manufacturing in the region, um, but it should be reserved to the higher value added, more sector oriented uh, parts of uh, you know global trade and, and supply chain logistics and, and, and these sorts of sectors that Hong Kong should be targeting. Um, not so much attracting you know, entire Asia-Pacific operations to the region. Mm. What, what should we do to try and get our economy out of the doldrums? The government's forecasting a contraction of around 3% now for this year. It's mm. going to be the third yearly contraction in the last four years. What, what needs to be done? Well, indeed, um, we do expect that growth will continue to remain very weak, at least into the first half of next year. Um, China is, uh, you know, hinting that it's planning to reopen, but we, we haven't seen um, a blueprint of reopening yet. Definitely the cross-border part will be the last thing to, to reopen. Mm -hmm. um, so Hong Kong will have to depend on its own old pillars. I think you cannot uh, completely overhaul an economy in, in, in six months. Um, so inevitably, you know, they have to continue to um, drive the old pillars. They have to continue to do um, fiscal policy stimulus, um, given that the, you know, the peg to the US dollar is now amplifying that uh, countercyclical uh, aspect of US rate hikes and uh, Hong Kong economic cycle. So they need to lean more on fiscal, maybe consumption vouchers is not the right approach, but definitely ensuring um, that we don't experience an increase in unemployment, um, ensuring that uh, international tourists other than China can come to the territory, so completely ditching the zero plus three policy would be a good start. Um, they have to do incremental bottom-up measures to try to keep things uh, from going too negative um, before uh, we see that reopening coming out of China. Dong, what have we got to do here? We can't just wait, can we, for the borders to reopen uh, with, with China. We've got to take some steps. I, I agree. I mean, I think Carlos just mentioned some, uh, I think, very important measures. I think given that the Chinese border continues to be closed, for in the, at least in the foreseeable future, uh, then need to do more things to open up to the international community, right? At this point in the near term, we see a very strong headwind for Hong Kong economy is a loss of population. We're seeing mm -hmm. like massive migrant migration out of this territory, and the the Hong Kong government needs to stop that. And I think they have been trying, you know, they, they, in in a lot of you know uh, a lot of measures uh, announced by uh, Mr. Lee recently that are aimed at you know uh, uh, addressing that problem. And I think we need to do more, right? especially uh, foreign talents at this point. And we seem to be losing some of our most productive, qualified people, the people that are going young uh, to maybe some middle-aged people, people are well qualified, moving up the management level into more senior positions. They're the ones we can least afford. It? So it's going to lead to some sort of permanent economic scarring. Well, unfortunately, yeah, that, that's happening. Actually, we're saying that for some companies, the entire team has re relocated to other uh, regions. And uh, so that means not only the people, 
are living, you are looking at those positioning, uh, those uh, job positions are living uh, as well, I mean, permanently. So that's exactly the, what the Hong Kong government needs to address now immediately. Okay. Let me um, turn to Japan and also some of the central banks as well. The, uh, there was disappointing economic news from Japan. GDP uh, shrank 1.2% in the third quarter and inflation in Japan has hit a 40-year high. Um, Japan's consumer price index most 3.6% year-on-year in October. That beat expectations for a rise of 3.5%. It's the biggest rise since February 1982. But Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda says um, Japan has yet to see inflation hit 2% in a stable, sustained manner. And he thinks core CPI is likely to slow, so he sees no reason to move from ultra-easy monetary policy. Um, Carlos, is the Bank of Japan making the same mistake that the Fed did last year in ignoring inflation, do you think? I think the Bank of Japan is trying to be cautious um, before making a, a move. There's also the whole debacle surrounding personnel changes in April, um, which is uh, around the same time as uh, the salary negotiations in, in Japan. Um, they are going to wait and see if we see... Um, significant upside pressure on wages um, in the spring. If that's the case, then you can, it's pretty guaranteed that you will see a structural pickup in core CPI, hence justifying a, a pivot in your stance. But for the time being, they don't have enough data to warrant such pivot. Um, and so they are um, staying put with policy accommodation. The irony of all of this is that the, the strategy is supposed to be pro-growth, but BOJ's policies are in fact turning out to be anti-growth because the impact of imported inflation is, is bigger than, than whatever positive um, uh, impact they're ga gaining from, from the accommodation from Bank of Japan. So I think um, that we are waiting for, for the spring, um, but that a, a pivot by BOJ is inevitable. Does, doesn't it, Dong sound uh, remarkably familiar that, uh, you know, the Fed was talking a year ago about transitory inflation, got it horribly wrong. Uh, do you think the Bank of Japan's doing the same thing? Well, I think that Japan is, you know, structurally the economy is different, right? Because you have very old economy, very old population, sorry. And uh, then the, the economy experiences decades-long deflation. So structurally, I would say it's not the same as the U.S. or other Western countries. But also, also I would like to mention one thing that is on, probably is also on the Japanese government and the BOJ's mind is the government this japan's very large government debt you're looking at japan you if you take into account the local governments as well you have 260 percent worth of gdp or public debt on their on their balance sheet and this is huge um so any rise in the funding costs actually is going to add a lot of burden on the uh, on the uh, Japanese government, so I think this is also one uh, consideration. That's why you look at uh, what the Mr. Kishida is saying. He's saying take advantage of the low uh, exchange rate, right? And so that's that's what you need to do. You need to invite the mm. foreign uh, travelers coming instead of trying to fix, you know, to to hike the rate and jack up the Japanese yen immediately. That's not the immediate solution to them. At least what's what, what I read. I, I can't help thinking, though, that even taking into account its own differences, if you like, in its domestic economy, the Bank of Japan's got this horribly wrong. For decades, it's wanted inflation, only to find it's got exact, uh, exactly the wrong type of inflation. And at the same time, wages aren't going up either. 
Um, well, yeah. So I think this is a dilemma for uh, Bank of Japan. But broadly, if you, if you look at all the central banks globally, you know, central banks are all of them are in very difficult situations because there is a limit. To monetary policy, you know, over the past mm-hmm. decades, every central bank, you know, were pretending that they can fix the world by printing money, and uh, it, no, it didn't work, and it won't work because there is a limit. But unfortunately, you know, the structural problems and uh, everything still persist, and uh, uh, yeah, so many many central banks are all in a very difficult situation. Carlos, what's this going to do for the yen then, if uh, the Bank of Japan continues down this course? Yeah, exactly. I think it's going to be a bumpy ride for Japan.、Um, I, th- I personally think we are going to see、um, wage growth in the spring.、Um, they're talking around five percent, and that should be enough to warrant a pivot,、um, definitely towards a more flexible yield curve control target. If not,、um, eventually、uh, com- moving away from the negative interest rate policy, which would be huge, by the way. Remember, Bank of Japan has been at the forefront of an orthodox monetary policy, so this could really signal. Uh, a U-turn in terms of monetary policies globally,、um, and it could also lead to、uh, you know a structural move up in rates、uh, you know across the globe, including the U.S. and Europe, because the Bank of Japan is really anchoring as、uh, the last sort of beacon of, of negative interest rate policy and low rates around the world. So I think it's huge, which compounded with the point on、uh, that Dong was mentioning on、um, increasing government debt and then them, them leaning more on fiscal next year to stimulate activity. I think could mean that we will see a lot of pressure on. On the currency, as investors become more wary of the situation in Japan, so I think it's definitely one of the things to watch out for in 2023. Don, we've seen the U.S. dollar; it's down about four percent now in in November. It seems to be there's more optimism that inflation has peaked in the United States, and that maybe the Fed、um, can start slowing interest rate hikes. Do you share that optimism? Well, at this point, I think it's still a little bit premature to claim victory. That you know, inflation is on a you know、uh, you know downward trend and at least towards the two percent target. I think the Fed, obviously, the Fed does not think so either because they cannot afford to repeat the same mistake in the 1970s. So you know, from a rate perspective, I do think there is definitely more room of rate hike, and the, probably the market is a little bit ahead of itself. What do you think, Carlos? Are you optimistic? Can the Fed、uh, start slowing interest rate hikes? I am optimistic that inflation is、um, showing signs of peaking, but I would place the emphasis on、mm-hmm. ING and not ED.、Um, so we could be in a position whereby the Fed does smaller rate hikes,、um, but the market has definitely started to reprice higher terminal rates, as you mentioned, around five or five point two five. So、um, this this recent risk rally, I think, it's a little bit.、Um, It's a little bit too soon to say, but every time、um, the market starts to do this and starts to、um, think, yeah, you know, inflation has peaked, the, the Fed's going to ease. The Fed hawks come out in force, don't they? We've had a lot of them、uh, last week. James Bullard、uh, was particularly、um, sort of hawky. Is, is this deliberate? Did you, do you get the impression the Fed just does not want the market、uh, to get ahead of itself? Because if it does, it sort of that just means that、uh, monetary policy is getting easier, doesn't it? Indeed.、Um, so the forward guidance and the communication is one of the tools that the Fed can use in order to manage ex- inflation expectations, and I, I do believe that it's 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 been actively used right now to try to gear market sentiment. What do you, what do you think, Dog? Is it more than a coincidence that、uh, every time we seem to get、uh, you know the dollar weakening, bond yields falling, out come the Fed hawks? I agree. Yeah, because they they cannot allow the market to. 
you know, to be thinking that they are uh, pointing to one direction so that actually eventually force the Fed into a, you know, awkward situation. I mean, they, they definitely try to avoid that kind of scenario. Okay, thank you both very much. You heard that Dong Chen, who's head of Asia Macroeconomic Research at Pictet Wealth Management, and Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at Union Boncare Privé. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a look around the Asia-Pacific stock markets. Uh, in Australia, the ASX 200 up 0.1%. Nikkei 225 in Japan, risen about uh, a third of a percent, half an hour into the open. The Cosby in South Korea is down half a percent. It also looks like we're going to see um, a weaker open for the Hang Seng, losing about 100 points or so in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Jim Gordon and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two showers. Maximum temperature is going to be around 26 degrees and then the outlook is for showers in the next couple of days and windy tomorrow. Temperature right now is 24 degrees, 77% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Ben Cherry with the Half Hour News. John Lee has tested positive for COVID after returning to Hong Kong from his first overseas trip as chief executive. A spokesman from the CE's office said Mr. Lee had tested negative on rapid tests during his four-day trip to Bangkok, but a PCR test administered upon his return to Hong Kong last night came back positive. The spokesman said he will undergo isolation and work from home. No other official who accompanied him on his trip have tested positive so far. Mr. Lee had flown to Bangkok to attend the APEC summit and to tell business leaders there about Hong Kong's strengths as a gateway to the mainland and as a center for innovation, arts and sports. Malaysia is waiting the outcome of tense negotiations as political leaders scramble to form a governing coalition after Saturday's general election produced a hung parliament. Former Prime Minister Mujahideen Yassin says he has secured backing from two political blocs based in Borneo, but is still short of a majority. Longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim is also claiming that he can form a form with form a block with support from two other parties. The palace has given them until 2 o'clock this afternoon to present the name of a lawmaker they think has a majority support in the lower house of parliament. Trisha Yeo, who heads the think tank the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs, says Malaysians are anxiously waiting for a definitive result. If there is a stalemate, uh, an impasse of sorts, then this will have to continue. And of course, the fears are what that going to do to the economy, to the markets, be hopefully seeing the light of day by the end of the day so that tomorrow we will see some stability uh, for the country. But having said that, I think for something as serious as deciding who the government is going to be, I think that uh, the various parties and coalitions do also need to exercise caution and not rush to a, a rash decision because Ultimately, policy decisions over the next five years are at stake. The Football World Cup has begun in Qatar with a lavish opening ceremony and a humbling defeat for the hosts. They were easily beaten by Ecuador 2-0. Before the game got underway, world leaders were among the guests who watched a show featuring fireworks, music and speeches promoting unity. Here's the BBC's Alex Capstick. 
It was a really excited opening. When we got here very early, there weren't many people at the Albate Stadium. It's well out of town, 40 kilometres north of uh, Doha, in the desert, really. Not much here, apart from our magnificent stadium. The Albate Stadium is designed like a Bedouin tent. It really is very, very impressive, a huge structure right in the middle of the desert. When fans did start arriving, they were really looking forward to this event. Most of them Qataris, of course, and most of them very proud of what their country has done. They didn't want to talk about all the negative aspects and the build-up to this tournament. They wanted to talk about what an achievement Qatar had done by building these new stadiums and all the infrastructure around that in time for the World Cup. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. This morning we're talking about uh, countryside facilities and preservation and in particular conservation plans for the Lantau Mountain Camp. The remote collection of stone huts high up on Sunset Peak and the surrounding area is due for a $12.5 million regeneration and restoration project headed by the Chinese University.